This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, actor Joel Edgerton, is Australian, but he's learned a lot about American racism through the roles he's played. In the 2016 film Loving, he played Richard Loving, a white man who married a black woman, leading to the historic Supreme Court decision, Loving v. Virginia, the case that overturned state laws that made interracial marriage illegal. In the streaming series The Underground Railroad, he played a determined slave catcher, and now he stars in Paul Schrader's new film, the third in Schrader's trilogy of films, each about a lonely man who has emotionally shut down to escape the past. Each of these films has echoes of Schrader's screenplay for Taxi Driver and his character Travis Bickle, God's Lonely Man. As in Taxi Driver, the lead characters in each of these films is known by their profession, a minister in First Reformed, a card counter in The Card Counter, a horticulturalist in the new film, Master Gardener. The main characters, like Travis and Taxi Driver, keep a journal. In Master Gardener, Edgerton is the head gardener in a historic public garden that has existed for four generations on a southern family estate. His journal is filled with his thoughts about gardening and how it's a metaphor for much of life. Here's a journal entry from early in the film. The Nandina is a species of flowering plant native to Eastern Asia. The smell at certain times of the year is minty with a hint of almond. It gives you a real buzz. Like the buzz you get just before pulling the trigger. Gardening is the most accessible of the arts. It's already there. Every seed is a plant waiting to be unlocked. It was commonly thought that 150 years was a lifetime of a seed. In the 1950s, a Japanese botanist discovered viable lotus seeds in an ice age lake bed. A substantial portion were germinated. It is now believed that the lifetime of a seed is between 850 and 1250 years. Given the right conditions, seeds can last indefinitely. I wear mine on my skin every day. As the gardener writes this in his journal, we see him shirtless, revealing that his back and chest are covered with swastikas and other white nationalist symbols. It's shocking. And we don't know what to make of it, but we slowly learn as the movie progresses. Homophobia was at the center of Edgerton's film Boy Erased, which he wrote and directed. He co-starred as the director of a religious-based gay conversion therapy center with the mission of converting gay teens into heterosexuals. The film was adapted from a memoir by a gay man who'd been sent to such a center when he was in his teens. Edgerton also wrote and directed the psychological thriller The Gift, among his many other roles are Tom Buchanan in The Great Gatsby and Owen Lars, Anakin Skywalker's half-brother, in two of the Star Wars prequels and in the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
He started making movies with his brother Nash when they were still in their pre-teens, home movies. Nash became a stuntman and did the stunts for Ewan McGregor in his role as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Joel Edgerton, welcome to Fresh Air. You are so great in this new movie. Um, You know, the movie starts in the garden, and I thought, what? Has Paul Schrader gone pastoral? What's going on here? <laughs> and of course, as I, soon as I heard the bullet in that clip that we just played, I thought, uh-huh, here we go. <laughs> what was your reaction reading the beginning? Uh, I remember as I started reading and reading about the garden, reading about his approach to gardening, the character's approach to gardening, thinking, all right, wh- when is the violence going to seep into this place? Um, and when we were in Venice talking about this film, um, it's really interesting, you know, to hear Paul talk about his evolution through these um, stories, which which bear resemblance to each other, but they are starting to shift into a softer, uh, more optimistic and hopeful place. In particular, the uh, the Master Gardener, which you know, without spoiling anything. It will be an interesting thing for anybody who's a fan of Paul to see how that this not only the setting but but the the kind of culmination of the story where it's headed is somewhere more hopeful than other things that he's written. You know, obviously, I recognize the swastika tattoos on your back, but what are the other symbols and writings tattooed on your body? Well, a lot of them are you know uh, iconic. Um, uh, symbols of white supremacist or white nationalist kind of organisations, the birth uh, birth date or birth year of Hitler, um, symbols of the SS and various other symbols and numbers that are significant and um, mean something to people in these sort of uh, white nationalist enclaves. Did you have to get them retattooed every day? You know... Paul is very restrained in the way that he makes films and expounds uh, story. And I remember wearing them for the first time and feeling the kind of strange power that they had. And Paul told me that he'd artfully sort of written the film so that we only ever see them on a specific three occasions. Um, so it was really a matter of only having to, to wear them on three different days. And it specifically made my character's uh, costume so uh, much a kind of veil and a cover for for all those tattoos so that when I'm operating within the garden, it's not f- – there's no hint of any of those markings until, you know, it's important that I take the, that shirt off. What what did Paul Schrader tell you about the kind of performance that he wanted? Because your character is both very charismatic, but during most of the film, he's emotionally shut down. You know, he's he's like created this rigid structure for himself. Uh, there's rules of gardening. There's rules in his life. He allows himself one cigarette a day. Um, everything's very regimented. He has to have control over the garden and everything else. But at the same time, you radiate this charisma. I think that must be really hard to do. So what did Schrader tell you about what he wanted from from the character and from your portrayal? Well, first of all, Paul is somebody rare that I've encountered that 
knows exactly what he wants and is very uh, straightforward in communicating the things that he wants. Um, and as an actor, his uh, interest in sort of letting me know from our earliest conversations what he imagined and expected of the character uh, was was very clear. And I remember Paul using the analogy of the ocean and the turbulence of different stages of turbulence of water and that he saw his stories uh, populated by characters that were the waves and the movement of water and the, and, and the chaos and, and uh, which I equated and he equates to, you know, emotional expression. Um, and that the central character of his stories was generally a kind of a pillar or a rock or a lighthouse amongst all that turbulence. Um, and essentially what he was telling me was do nothing. You know, let the story kind of let the words come through. Um, that the less of an actor that I was, the better for the, the film that he wanted to create. And I found that a really interesting challenge because I am an actor and, <laughs> you know, there, there's maybe a fear of doing nothing, a fear of not being good enough unless you're doing something. And by something, I mean, you know, uh, bringing your bag of tricks of performance and emotion and, and being loud and soft and emotional and angry and upset and all those things. And even bits of business like putting your hands in your pockets or fidgeting, you know, fidgeting with yeah. something like your character can't do any of that. He's just still. Yeah, creating a character uh, is often the the gravitational pull, but this is a different kind of character and the confidence to be still and the confidence to be quiet and the confidence to to just let the thoughts come through um and i found that a really sort of difficult but you know really alluring challenge and paul actually cited loving as something that he uh, admired in terms of its um its restraint so at least i had a guide in some of my previous films that that i understood what what he was sort of gravitating towards your your character in loving is so kind of unexpressive um he barely talks and he doesn't even go to the supreme court case that bears his name loving versus virginia um do you understand being as emotionally shut down as your character is is there anything that you can draw from from your own experience that understands what it is to push emotion down like that? I think I really understand it when it comes to aggression. Um, you know, I have a really interesting relationship with, with uh, uncomfortability and tension. I, I try and avoid it at all costs. I feel uh, deep anxiety when I see things of conflict. And I've often wondered if that's part of the reason that I that drew me to become an actor is that I go to work and I get paid. Um, what's less about being paid is more like I get to go to an environment where I can be all of the things that I'm not comfortable doing in my real life um, and feel comfortable within conflict. But yeah, if you, if you catch me in the midst of conflict in my life, I am like a snail, uh, you know, and I, I know what my threshold is. I know what my male pride and 
ego draws me into and I can feel when my blood goes up. Like I'm not, it's not like I don't feel the effects of it, but I would rather avoid it. And so here I am living a life where I have a job that requires me to participate in all this stuff. Do you understand why you're anxious about conflict? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I'm a people pleaser. Uh, I think I take that lead from my mother, whereas my father is very happy to rock the boat, um, to really be uh, assertive. Um, I think, you know, my mother and I just want to make sure everybody's okay. And I think sometimes that is to your own detriment because it requires you to bear the load um, and repress certain other things. I mean... I'm okay. I'm not like a combustible bottle ready to smash and burst open and create some massive flash of violence. But, you know, I, I feel that compression and, and repression at times. Um, but I'm pretty good with my other emotions, I think. So did you have to do research about white supremacists in America? I mean, because, like, you're from Australia. I don't know how familiar you are with the American breed of white supremacy. The biggest uh, concerning thing for me, and yes, I did a lot of reading about it, and it was even before Paul called me, um, is is the confidence to step out into the public sphere and onto social media um, and to feel less fear about their opinions. Um, I found that the most alarming thing. And it it was like an environment had been created that said, hey... All those things that you're thinking, it's okay to think them and it's okay to say them and free speech is there to protect you. And um, and on one hand, there was this feeling like, okay, well, at least, you know, you know where danger lurks if it's, if it's walking around freely and talking freely. Um, but it was alarming, I think, that there was a, such a growth in a certain acceptability of those opinions uh, according to some sections of the community. And... So yeah, I, I I was pretty well aware of certain different groups, and you know, uh, I could understand exactly where the birth of Paul's creation of character had come from. But the question, or one of the questions he's proposing, is: Can we forgive the actions of a person within their own lifetime? Uh, if they start one place and evolve to another. And, and the starting point for Narvel's character is as a white nationalist with very strong opinions and violence towards people uh, of colour, um, which he states, I think, through... I state throughout the film that that there's an implication there are ideas that were handed down to him um, that he didn't question which I think goes for a lot of people who hold uh, racist opinions and racist points of view in our world. They have to learn it from somewhere. So let's talk about your film Boy Erased, which you wrote and directed, adapting it from a memoir by Garrett Conley, who was sent to a gay conversion therapy center as a teenager. And in this film, the main character is sent to a gay conversion center whose mission is to turn gay teens into straight teens. Um, The teenager is sent there by his Baptist parents, and it reminds me of your character Norville in Master Gardener, 
the former uh, white nationalist who says, I was raised to hate people different from me. I was good at it. Um, so what do you relate to about that? Because it's a theme in Boy Erased and a theme in your new film. Yeah, I remember because this was something that really sort of brought to bear for me when I was making The Gift, which is really underpinned by this theme of bullying, um, is that I've seen both sides of that situation. I remember being part of groups that would sort of, you know, the safety in numbers feeling like the way to kind of fit in would be to treat other people unkindly and be a bully and... I don't think I was ever smart enough to be a ringleader of bullying, but definitely like part of uh, being cruel to other kids. And I was definitely on the receiving end of that as well. Um, and I remember, you know, on the press tour for Boy Race, going, yeah, I remember the kind of homophobic slurs that you, you know, you perhaps would say without ever really understanding what you were talking about. Like I remember in high school, I, I don't think I ever knew anybody of the LGBTQ community until I met and realized that a very close friend of my father's um, had come out and I started to really understand what being gay was when I was a teenager. Um, but before that, I was like, there, there are words that I won't repeat here that I'm sure uh, I didn't really quite understand, but it was just a way of teasing somebody. Um, you know, and I think those sort of formative years, particularly I'm fascinated by the ages of, of you know, as a, as a guy anyway, young men and, and young girls at the age of sort of 13, 14, 15, as they start to understand um, how they can hurt others and, where is that point where we start to understand uh, that we can hurt others and, and how to sort of go about uh, not letting that live into your later teens and into your adult life? You say you were on both sides of bullying. What were you bullied for? Uh, I remember a particular event. I was locked in a bathroom when I was in grade seven and thrown around by about three or four um much older boys and I am certain now that all they were doing was sort of entertaining themselves and found it quite fun and funny but to me I really thought my my life was in danger um, that I was in a very vulnerable position and I was sort of stuck in there for probably only a couple of minutes but it felt like an eternity um, and it resulted in these boys getting suspended from school but I felt this really deep fear that day um, and years later I was in a cafe uh, and this boy came up to me or this man came up to me I would have been probably 19 or 20 um, and introduced himself and the moment he said his name I knew that he was one of those boys and uh, he apologized to me um, and told me that his father had taken him out of school because of that event and that it was the best thing that ever happened to him because he was very unhappy at that school, but that he wanted to let me know that now that he'd run into me that he was sorry. Um, and it was quite a significant thing, you know, a really weird uh, short little moment that happened in a cafe in Sydney. How, how did it affect you emotionally to have him apologize? Because it sounds like this is something that you'd carried around for a long time. 
you know, uh, I felt the guilt of having told my dad that this thing had happened and the fact that my dad then went to the school and I was mortified and then these boys got suspended and I felt like I was then in danger, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, school is a dangerous place. I, I you know, I think, um, you know, I'm fascinated with that I, that age that I was talking about, 13, 14, 15, and in fact recently I'm working on another story that deals with um, with bullying and, and with uh, the dangerous environment of high school and um, I don't know why, it's just one of my uh, fascinations. Well, let's take a break here and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is actor Joel Edgerton. He stars in Paul Schrader's new film, Master Gardener. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Anne-Marie Baldonado here to tell you about our latest bonus episode, celebrating 36 years since a little daily talk show out of Philadelphia went national. Were you nervous? I starting was really, the show? really nervous because it was like making my debut. Welcome to the premiere of the daily edition of Fresh Air. 36 years ago this month, Fresh Air became a daily national show on NPR. In our most recent bonus episode, I talked to Terry about Fresh Air's early days and how her job has changed since then. Well, I had a younger brain then, so it was just like stuffing your brain. It's like overeating, like your brain overeating every day and every night. (laughs) So fresh air is like being stuffed? Loosen your belt, brain. There's more. (laughs) That's in our recent bonus episode, available now for Fresh Air Plus supporters. Let's get back to my interview with Joel Edgerton, who has starred in many films, including Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener. In the 2016 film Loving, he played Richard Loving, a white man who married a black woman, leading to the historic Supreme Court case Loving v. Virginia that overturned state laws that had made interracial marriage illegal. In the streaming series The Underground Railroad, he played a determined slave catcher. Edgerton also wrote and directed the psychological thriller The Gift, and among his many other roles are Tom Buchanan in The Great Gatsby and Owen Lars, Anakin Skywalker's half-brother, in two of the Star Wars prequels and in the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, It sounds like when you were in, I don't know, your teens or 20s, you worked at a hotel in a very dangerous area of Sydney, Australia. And um, was the hotel itself dangerous? Like what, what went on in that hotel? No, it was the hotel was actually quite a sort of gentrified. I think it was part of the Hyatt chain 
It just happened to be at the entry gates to the red light district in Sydney, you know, where it's slightly changed now because of sort of nighttime curfew laws. But King's Cross was where and is where most of the sort of hub of prostitution and drugs, the drug trade and and lots of sort of nightclubs are. And the hotel was right at the uh, beginning edge of that. Um, and I was sort of terrified. I mean, I, I was a quasi-country boy growing up, and I had only just moved to the city uh, and gone to a drama school, which was back out in the country sort of areas. And here I was living in the city, and I needed a job. You know, I, I was out of college, and, and I was working as a porter or, a you know, a bellhop, as Americans would say, I guess. Um, and it was more the things that would go on outside the front doors and, you know, fights spilling in and um, somebody that I was working with ended up going to prison for selling guns out of that hotel. Um, uh, I remember there was a really, really awful uh, event that happened where one of, the, one of my co-staff... Uh, uh, I wasn't around that particular week, but had had committed suicide at the hotel. Um, it just felt like for the environment that I'd grown up in, which was very leafy and safe and bushland and um, lovely, uh, I was suddenly in the chaos of the city and it was like very eye-opening for me. Did you ever feel like you were in a movie but nobody had written your part in the script? <laughs> yeah. Because you were not used I mean, to any of this. All of this is happening around you. I feel like danger is just part of the, the optimism of youth, you know, that, you know, my brother and I would go skiing and, and the things that we would do on a pair of skis, I would never even dream of doing now. You know, Children want to defy gravity and climb really high. And I think the same could be said about the curiosity for weirdness and, and unusual things and trying to get into nightclubs when you're way too young, um, you know, forging your own ID to try and get into places. And I, I think part of life is understanding that you're not immortal, um, and I have this strong belief that we all at some point learn that lesson and hopefully we learn it in a semi-safe way. Um, How did you learn it? I remember exactly when I learned it. I was in Thailand when when all the planes were supposed to fall out of the sky on uh, the turn of the... Um, Millennium. Millennial to Y2K and we were expecting, I think Nike's ads had giraffes running around in the city and, you know, I went to Thailand and we were counting down to midnight and we were waiting for all the chaos to happen, which which we all know now never happened. Um, but my chaos happened that night. I, I got uh, super drunk and I was uh, doing acrobatics on the beach, something that I'd learnt through my brother and his stunt guys friends um, and I landed upside down on my neck Ooh. in the sand at about two o'clock in the morning and when I stood up I couldn't feel my left arm at all um, and I had a feeling like I'd almost broken my spine and 
it turned out that I, I was told I'd completely torn the nerves in my left neck that, that extended to my left arm. Um, and it took me about eight months to rehab. And I, I, I saw a neurosurgeon who told me I hadn't torn the nerves. I'd just stretched them. But I, I think the significant part of it was I realized that I'd been careless with myself uh, and I put myself in a lot of danger and that I could easily have ended up in a wheelchair that day and I was lucky. I was so lucky that I'd been injured in a way that was bad but not lasting um, and it really made me reassess my point of view on dangerous things in general. Meanwhile, your brother Nash became a stuntman, and so yeah. I guess he did not lose his taste for danger. And what's the craziest thing you've seen him do in a movie? Uh, the craziest thing he's ever done is in real life, which I'll tell you about. But um, the, the, the most awful thing I've ever watched my brother do, and I've seen him do it three times now, is set himself on fire or be set on fire. Um, this is in movies? Yeah. I've seen him do it a few times, two two times in a movie and once in a TV show. And I get very scared because uh, fire is just... like I've seen him jump off things and I've seen him get injured badly. Uh, but something about watching your brother get set on fire, I mean, I, I, it even makes me upset talking about it. And he's always been fine. He got burnt once pretty badly on the arm but um he's okay the craziest thing uh, to lighten the mood <laughs> yes my brother jumped out of a moving train because he was late for a basketball game oh wow yeah and uh he basically realized the train he'd got on wasn't going to stop at the station where his ride was so he pushed the doors open waited for the platform to come along, put his backpack on and just figured he could jump out and do a dive roll. And he cut himself up so badly that when he got in the car with my friend's mother, he said he'd been in a fight with somebody and she took him to the basketball court and he walked on and I was there and I was like, what happened to you? He's like, I'll tell you about it later. And he tried to go on and play, and the referee told him he wasn't allowed because he was bleeding so much. I, I can't even imagine opening the door because they're closed. I mean, I've never been on an Australian train, but from start to finish, that's just impossible for me. Yeah, to well, our trains are. like a backpack on? The train would have been going about 50 to 60 miles an hour. Um, and yeah, he jumped. He jumped out. He was probably about sixteen. It's oh, crazy. Very, very. Well, let's take another break here. Let your brother heal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, then, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Joel Edgerton. He stars in Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Joel Edgerton, who's starring in Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener. Um, I want to play a clip from the first really famous film that you were in, and that was Star Wars Revenge of the Clones. Oh, okay. Okay, so I want to play a clip, and you are Anakin Skywalker's half-brother in this. This is where you first meet. Owen Lars, this is my girlfriend, Baru. Hello, I'm Padme. I guess I'm your stepbrother. I had a feeling you might show up someday. Okay, I think that's all your lines in the film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, right? That's, that's, that's your part. Oh, I should mention, what you, there's also a scene indoors. That's outdoors. There's also a scene indoors when you both go indoors, and we see the back of your head mostly. And that's it, right? Yeah, but that was my crowbar into Hollywood, I'll call that. And how did you use that crowbar? Well, you know, I had a curiosity about going to America and that George Lucas was probably going to take about 18 months to put the movie together. And I knew that I could go to Hollywood and say that I was in the new Star Wars film and nobody would know that it was only like three minutes. (laughs) And... uh, and that it would allow me to, you know, meet with agents and do things, um, get the opportunities or the opportunities to audition for the kinds of things that I thought I was capable of, uh, which I did. And, you know, at the time, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess it was two, yeah, 2000, you know, I went to LA and started doing meetings and trying to get people to take me seriously. And so Star Wars really sort of opened that door for me. And what happened <laughs> What happened after anyone saw how small your part was? Uh, no, one, no one called me and said, hey, you conned me. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and even to this day, for all of the work that I've done, uh, you know, when I go to a festival and sign photographs for fans if they're there, uh, it's still half of them are, are photographs from me in Star Wars, whether it be the Disney Plus series recently, but more so the old Star Wars films. Um, and ironically, I heard someone say this is a, sec- a secondhand story that that uh, Liam Neeson uh, quipped at some point about signing all of his Qui Gon uh, uh, photographs from Star Wars. He's like, I'm shit. <laughs> He's like thinking about all the other work he's done. He's like, I was Schindler for sake, you know. <laughs> um, and it's amazing. The the legion of Star Wars fans are there and they always be there. And and as much as my few lines in uh, A New Hope, I mean in, in the second installment of Star Wars, weren't Hamlet 
or they weren't Henry V, they um, are very much part of my timeline that I'm gra- I have gratitude for. What did Star Wars mean to you growing up? How old were you when you saw your first Star Wars film, and which one was it? I, Star Wars was huge to me. I was a collector of the the little toys. Um, I remember one of my the first significant cinema experiences I had was my father waking my brother up uh, and putting us in the car and driving twenty minutes to the Roxy Cinema in Parramatta, which is where he worked, like where near where he worked. And we wore pajamas in our slippers to go watch Return of the Jedi. Um, and so Star Wars was very much part of my youth, as was Indiana Jones and E.T. and, you know, uh, Lucas and Spielberg kind of were very much part of my, the seeds of my interest in, in cinema. And so, you know, being cast even in a small role in Star Wars was like a dream that I never imagined could come true, coming true. We had access to the set. You got to see how things worked. Um, you yeah. got to work with George Lucas. Yeah, and I got to go Unless to Tunisia. it was Tunisia. a second unit director. <laughs> you didn't get yeah. to see him. And, you know, I had, I had long had a dream that I could potentially be an actor and see the world at the same time. And it was the first time that I had proof that that could come true because I got flown to Tunisia to do a couple of scenes and I remember getting out of this white land cruiser in the sweltering heat in the Sahara Desert in in Tatooine and I looked across and there are the water towers, the iconic water towers of Owen Lars's moisture farm and there was C-3PO standing there next to George Lucas and I felt like... I was moving in a in a direction that I wanted to move. Hmm. So let's talk about growing up. Your parents were Catholic. I think like pretty pretty religious. Would you say? I I was given a Catholic upbringing and did my Holy Communion. Uh, I think specifically because my parents were actually just trying to please my grandparents. You know, and and my church going. I was very much a little Ned Flanders kid. You know, <laughs> once I'd done my Holy Communion, it was like Sunday morning, I was full of beans. It's like, let's go to church. And um, looking back on it, I realized my parents at the time would have been in their early to mid-30s. And every couple of Sundays, they'd be like, well, we're not going to go today. And they'll probably hung over or, you know, just tired from having friends around the night before. And I stopped going to church for about a month. And then I was terrified of God. Um being angry with me. Uh, so no, my parents weren't necessarily deeply religious. I think they gave us uh, the option of Catholic religion to please grandparents. Was there a point when you felt like the church subscribed to views that you no longer believed, whether it pertained to uh, divorce or LGBTQ rights, marriage equality, abortion? No. Uh, you know, at the time, my... Um, my questioning about religion was more about what I would call the fairy tale aspect of it. You know, it's this idea of adhering to a, a bunch of stories that seemed, um, you know, in fairness to anybody who who is dedicated to these religions, I, I, I admire you and I have envy for your 
um, for for the aspects that religion gives you. But I sat there going, why? How, how did he go around the world and get two of every animal? Like, how did that happen? And um, you know, questioning some of the what I felt like the were the more far fetched stories within the Bible um, started to make me wonder. And and to be honest, you know, there are a couple of times that I lost friends uh, late in high school. And that really reinforced for me uh, my questioning about where did God fit into the scheme of things if he took good people away. Wait, why did um, you lose friends? What was the conflict? I know. I mean, like lost, lost as in they, they oh, passed away. Oh, they died. Away. Oh, oh. Yeah, car, car yeah. accident, a motorcycle accident. And, oh. um, and you know, I, I've, I, I was fascinated by the book of Job to be honest, because it felt like an explanation to me about how um, we can have things taken away from us but still have devotion. Um, And I couldn't really fathom that as much. I couldn't really um, put that into place in my head. Uh, I'm being very diplomatic here, but um, it it just raised a lot of questions for me. Was there like a specific moment when you officially left the church or was it a, a gradual not going this week, not going next week? Yeah, like we didn't go for a few weeks in a row and I actually started to get very scared that um, I'd be in trouble with God. Um, like it was a real uh, a real feeling for me and I would pray before I went to bed every night uh, and the two things I prayed for was that I wouldn't, get sent to war um, and that I wouldn't get taken away from my parents, like like taken away by a stranger. Um, and I remember them being very potent fears for me. I think part, part of our education in, in junior school or, you know, primary school was stranger danger and, and, and watching images of news on the war. They were my two big fears, and I asked God to make sure that I was protected from them. And so when I, when I stopped going to church, I, I don't think I ever really got rid of my Catholic guilt. And you had no one to pray to about not being sent to war. Yeah, so I, I think it was a slow kind of atrophy in a way, my relationship with religion. It wasn't like a definitive kind of line in the sand. Well, let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Joel Edgerton, and he stars in Paul Schrader's new film, Master Gardener. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Joel Edgerton. He stars in Paul Schrader's new film, Master Gardener, as a gardener who runs a historic public garden that has been in four generations of one family, and the garden is on the family estate in the South, with the implication that this garden was probably part of a plantation many years ago. So you are the father of twins, and you were so close with your brother growing up. Um, is your closeness with your brother and knowing what a brother can mean and what a profound effect you had on each other's lives, is that affecting your approach to having, you know, to being the father of twins? My brother and I uh, ended up in the happy situation where I think the bar is set very high of my expectations or hopes for my own kids, you know, like, cause my brother and I will talk to each other every couple of days. Uh, we hang out a lot. We share ideas. We're working on things together. Um, you know, I think we made our parents very happy to know that we were so close and have remained so close. Um, my brother's a godfather of one of my kids, and um, I just hope that they're close and the expectation of twins are that they will be, but you never know. Um, and look, I've always taken my brother's lead on so many things, and I watched him become a father bec before I became a father. And I watched how he shifted a little bit and softened a little bit and opened up space in his life in a beautiful way and it was all positive. And I remember feeling very envious about that and it wasn't like I suddenly was like, all right, well, I better hurry up and have kids. <laughs> but I, I remember thinking, I hope I get to experience what he's experiencing and what he's thriving uh, from. Um and so we, we get to have a whole different level of conversations with each other now, which is about our children, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Has your brother Nash ever served as a stuntman for you in one of Oh, absolutely. Oh, really? Uh, I, there was a very funny moment in Australia where we're on the rooftop of a car park, uh, like a parking structure, and um, my character in this TV show called Dangerous – had to um, get hit by a car and it was, I think it was the moment my character gets killed. Um, and what happened that night is I got to sat in, sit in a chair with a blanket over myself with a cup of tea in my hand while my brother 
got hit by this car and broke the windshield. Um, and then I watched him get shards of glass sucked out of his hand with a vacuum cleaner, uh, which is a great way of getting glass out of your hand, people, if it ever happens. Um, and prior to that night, I remember my mother said, Nash, you know, does Joel ever have to do anything dangerous in this TV, in this film or this show? And make sure you do it for him. And he's like, what? So I can be broken, but Joel can't. <laughs> she said, but it's your job. <laughs> Was he okay after going through the windshield? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He's fine. Hours? And, you know, I'll tell you something else because I just did nine episodes of a TV show. Um, and these young stunt guys that were working, doing certain things for me, I realized that stunt people – hats off to them all over the world because they're the opposite of actors. You know, an actor will complain about something that's not even worth complaining about. A stunt guy could be almost broken in two and you'd be like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> stunt guys never complain. Uh, they always downplay injuries uh, and, and, and an actor will want a day off over a tiny splinter. Does that describe you? Uh, yeah, unfortunately. I said earlier that I wasn't a tough guy. You did. <laughs> no, I, you know, I like to mix it up. I like to get involved with particularly fights uh, and horse riding and the kind of slightly safer aspects of stunt work. But stunt people are all part of the close pit crew of actors that help us do our job better and make us look better. Joel Edgerton, it's been really great to talk with you. Thank you so much, and congratulations on Master Gardener. Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Joel Edgerton stars in Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, our guest will be author and humorist Samantha Irby. Her new collection of essays called Quietly Hostile takes us through her rise as a Hollywood TV show writer, the trials of getting turned away at swanky L.A. restaurants for not dressing hip enough, and the impossible task of making teenagers think you're cool. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's happening on our show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering today from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Bodinato, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Sharrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. 
It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.